What is up, Asymmetry? We just got off the phone with two phenomenal individuals that have dedicated themselves to scientifically exploring, discovering, documenting, understanding, and working towards the conservation of the tallest and the largest organisms on Earth, uh, the giant sequoias and the coastal redwoods. Anthony Ambrose and Wendy Baxter are the founders of the Ancient Forest Society, which is an organization doing tremendous things to inform and work towards the conservation of the ancient trees in North America and abroad. And, um, you know, in the brief conversation that we had with them, it's very clear that this is a necessary thing to be focusing our efforts on and contributing to. They talk about how we can all play a part in supporting the Ancient Forest Society and the conservation of the sequoias and uh, and the redwoods. Um, but they break down a lot of interesting information, fascinating projects, and uh, and just we had a good old time and a great conversation. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. Wow, thank you for making the time to sit down with us. I, I, ever since um, making the trek to Sequoia, we were... It was like, wow, it would be really nice just to have the ability to sit down and uh, and rap with you for a little bit, pick your brains. Wendy, we didn't get to meet, unfortunately, on that last trip, but it's super nice to put a face to the name. Everybody was uh, pretty bummed that you weren't there. So it seems, it seems, it seems like you're a popular figure in this whole, uh, what, what, what would you call it? Um, Adventure quest. Adventure quest. Yeah, it's like uh, it's like it was like a vagabond crew of tree people. I've ne- I've never seen anything like it. <laughs> it's it's really cool, actually. The we have met so many really cool and interesting people over the years that have we've all been brought together through the trees. Um, people like yourself you know, and all the people that were at Redwood Mountain Grove and all that we've had a ton of volunteers that have helped us with our work in the trees over the years from, you know, all over the United States. Um, You know, Kai was there from Germany. Um, We've just met amazing people that the the trees have brought us together, which is super. Now, did the trees bring the two of you together? They did actually. Um, yeah, back in 2010, I was looking for a job and I saw this job posted at UC Berkeley that said, you must be interested in climbing very tall trees. And I thought that sounded really interesting. Um, so I applied for the job as a research assistant to work on this Redwoods and Climate Change Initiative with Anthony as the postdoc for So that's how we met. Wow. Yeah, we started working together. Yeah. Yeah, very cool. So, So how did this... How did this all start? I mean, is was that your beginning in trees, Wendy? Then was was answering that that uh, that job opportunity? Yes, uh, professionally. Um, of course, as a kid, I loved being out in the forest and climbing trees, but that was my first uh, professional experience in, in trees. And where did where did you grow up? Where did life start for Wendy? I grew up on the East Coast in upstate New York, but I spent most of my summers and weekends in Pennsylvania, uh-huh. um, in rural Pennsylvania. So very different from the uh, the forests out here in the West, but um, the trees there are very beautiful as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If I asked you what your um, what your version of a tree is, a tree, what would you say? Oh, that's a really hard question. <laughs> uh, I don't ask I, I don't ask very many people oh, this question. There's always but a I, test. But I'm super 
<laughs> super cute. Just, just like, hey, Win- hey, hey, Wendy, sketch a tree. What what tree would you draw? What shape would you draw? It, honestly, it probably would be kind of like an oak shaped tree. Maybe uh-huh. just that just kind of goes back into my early days of yeah. That's great. Uh, I love it. It's I always love from it. not always. It's usually a tree from people's uh, childhood. Eighty five percent. They they did a they did a uh, psychological study. Eighty five percent of people's version of a tree is a tree directly from their uh, formative years of childhood and first memories. That makes sense. Yeah, and yeah, that's going to wrap up our time today. Thanks for joining <laughs> us on uh, Tree Journeys. Why? Why did you come? Why did you come? That's funny because I would answer the same thing. And I grew up in uh, in Indiana uh-huh. as a kid before, cool. before moving to California. And I used to love climbing the local hardwood trees in my neighborhood in Indiana when I was a kid. Um, maples, oaks, whatever they were. And like, if you asked me to like sketch a tree, I wouldn't draw a redwood necessarily i mean maybe but the first thing that comes to mind is is like one of those trees that i climbed as a kid yeah locked in locked in back super cool so so how did the how did both of you make your way to to the west coast what what brought you to the west coast uh for me it was just looking for a job so i had been living in australia for a couple of years and i moved back to the u.s and um I thought San Francisco would be a fun place to be based out of for a while. And so I just kind of stumbled upon this job at Berkeley. Nice. Yeah. Nice. And how'd you come here, Anthony? Here. I say here uh, at the West Coast. My family, my family moved to California when I was in first grade. And mm. uh, so uh, basically I just moved with the family to Southern California and then different places throughout California. I've basically lived my entire life since then. And, and, what what do the two of you do? Because our our relationship, or at least our you know sort of epicenter of meeting, was um, Steen Christensen said you got to come down and climb the sequoias. When I met him climbing the coastal redwood, uh, the grandfather tree last year, he said you got to come down and climb the sequoias. We're doing this cone collection, and and we podcasted with Steen, and he's like, yeah, Anthony, and hopefully Wendy will be there. You've got to meet him. And we were like, okay, that sounds good, you know, and and we'll um, yeah, and 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 we're familiar with uh, some of the research that you both have done and your names in terms of studying the the tallest and the largest trees and some of the you know vascular researchers gets thrown around a lot, uh, and so you know I'm just sort of curious, like what do you consider yourselves a- as far as as professionals? In, in your field? Are you scientists? Are you arborists? Are you dendrologists? Are you vascular researchers? Like, wh- what is that? I would say if you wanted to specialize, a specialized term would be like a tree ecophysiologist or physiological ecologist, understanding how trees function and how their structure influences their function and how they respond to environmental change, for example, uh, water stress, drought, uh, temperature, light, things like that. Um, but more broadly speaking, uh, uh, kind of forest ecologists or uh, forest biologists uh, trying to think more broadly about how trees interact with their surrounding environment and interact with each other. Um, 
a big part of our research, of course, is, is understanding how climate change influences these trees and all the different aspects of climate change and how we can protect these trees and forests in a changing world. Yeah. Yeah. And also um, partnering with uh, land managers who are looking for specific kinds of information that can help them to uh, manage these trees and forests into the future. So uh, we really like to do applied research that's going to be useful to someone. Um, so that's really a big motivating factor for what we're doing through the Ancient Forest Society. Right. Yeah. And and and, and I want to circle back to the Ancient Forest Society because uh, I think it's rock and roll. We were super excited. I know it was the Marmot Society, and then it became the Ancient Ancient Forest Society. But I'd love to talk about that. But just like staying on this subject in your field of research, currently. When you were talking, Anthony, about your research in the giant sequoias, you had said something about uh, the sequoias move 800 to 1,000 gallons of water a day through their vascular system. And you were doing core samples of moisture content, I believe. And if I, if I, you know, if I sort of muddy this up, you can clarify. But you were doing core samples of moisture and, and saying you were finding that they actually were moving water in three different locations of the trunk, potentially in three different directions throughout the day, depending on any number of factors. So if you're doing this research to be able to understand climate change and and you're still doing physiological research to understand vascular transport, do you have the information as a baseline prior to massive climate change to make those assessments? Or is this like a big study kind of like on the fly as things are rapidly changing, you're trying to wrap your mind around? Yeah, um, that's a good question. The, the, the temporal scale of our measurements varies from seconds or minutes to years to centuries or millennia. And, you know, depending on what we're looking at, if we're looking at the tree rings, we can go back more than a thousand years and look at how those trees were growing a thousand years ago prior to massive, you know, climatic industrial uh, activity change uh, that is influencing them now. But it is a moving target. And right now, all the measurements that we're making, anything that we're looking at new and contemporary is in a kind of a, a shifting baseline condition that, that as conditions are changing, it's like, well, is that how it always has been or is that something new? And, you know, something I think we're, uh, we're finding now is novel combinations of, of factors are influencing these trees in, in new and different ways that probably weren't prior to say 150 years ago, for example, like, you know, giant sequoias, for example, have been traditionally considered to be very pest resistant. They're, they don't, they don't get killed by beetles, for example, like, like pine, ponderosa pines, for example, that uh, can get killed by the millions by beetles on a regular uh, basis. But now we're starting to see that a novel combination of really severe drought with really high severity fire is making the giant sequoia trees more vulnerable to beetle attack. And they, in some cases, are not able to fight off beetle attack and the beetles are actually able to kill the trees. Whereas prior to recent history, that hadn't been observed before. We hadn't seen that before. Right. In 2014, we noticed a bunch of giant sequoia trees lost a bunch of foliage uh, 
in a way that hadn't been recorded in in past notes of or studies uh, by park rangers or naturalists. Uh, nobody had ever kind of observed this before, and you know that that's a testament to how drastically things are changing right now. That um, trees are are responding in new ways. Yeah. Yeah, uh, so tree ring research kind of provides the foundation for those century and millennial discussions of behavior, but like, you know, this compartmentalized movement and mobility of vascular resources, when you told me that, I was just like, well, that's, that's, really, that's really something. To think about such a sophisticated organism at that scale being able to really yeah. adapt and adjust like that over a 24-hour period, that just blew my mind. Yeah, it's it's really crazy the, um, that that this was uh, done. These measurements were made in the coast redwood trees and really tall coast redwood trees up in Humboldt County, and uh, we found that as they absorbed water through their leaves, um, the the direction of flow of that water within the tree changes drastically throughout the course of the day as water is moving up from the roots and then back down from the the water absorbed through the foliage at the treetop, that water can be moving in multiple different directions up and down the trunk in different parts of the tree at different times of the day simultaneously, which is really amazing. It's they're kind of like breathing in and out the, the water of the, the whole oh, ecosystem. I like that, that analogy. Living. Yeah, that's crazy, yeah. right? We just, yeah. um, I had told you about David Naus uh, from Apical Ag Solutions, who's doing some really cutting edge uh, nutrient research and monitoring of like, you know, metals, salts, uh, sugars, um, starch productivity through foyer, a really accurate foyer um, observation. And we talked with David a few weeks ago. It's, it just came out today on on Asymmetry, the podcast that we're speaking on, um, and and you know, moving into this like radically changing climactic condition, ask, asking him and sort of like this, this increase in susceptibility of insects as a product of uh, temperature increase, you know, he, he looks at everything from a nutrient level uh, and not necessarily such a, like a, a broader sort of vascular level. He's like really honing in on nutrients. And we took a few foliar samples from some fallen redwoods um, when we were out out and about and had them analyzed and they were he he commented on how high the aluminum content was which is a direct indication from his observation I don't want to speak for him but this is my understanding of it is a direct indication that there's a root decline happening when you have massive aluminum intake which would speak to potentially drought or you know conditions that are no longer favorable for the fine root mass to thrive and survive. And when you get high metals or high salt accumulation from these uh, conditions that are less than favorable, susceptibility to insect infestation rises dramatically. And hmm. so it was like uh, you know I threw that out there to you when we were down um, at Sequoia, and just there seems like there's a lot of connection or at least a desire to explain and understand all of this stuff because it's like oh my gosh don't don't go away you know like these trees don't go away they're such an identity yeah absolutely and you know what continually amazes me is how little we really know about you know big trees ancient forests and how they function um we know a lot of the basics but there's so much we don't know like for example 
just up until uh, you know the last 10 years, we didn't know how much water a giant sequoia used until we actually measured it. We we're the first ones to do that. And you know, basic things like that, the, the project that we're working on right now, trying to understand, well, where do giant sequoia trees get their water and how deep do their roots go? Right. You know, and just how- a fundamental biological question about these trees. You know, people speculate, oh, they have shallow roots, whatever, but nobody has any actual measurements to document that. And that's what we're trying to get at right now. So, you know, and basic fundamental things like that. And, you know, this information is, is, is really interesting just on a fundamental level, like as a, on a scientific level, just as a biologist, as a scientist, it's interesting to study these things. But it hopefully also, like uh, touching on what Wendy said earlier, um, can provide some information to the the land managers that are charged with protecting and conserving these places, uh, some of the information that they can helpfully, hopefully use to help protect them. Yeah. How, how do you choose what question to ask and invest your time and resources in studying? How do you make that decision? Uh, for our most recent projects, it's really done in collaboration with our um, our collaborators. So um, the National Park Service is um, our main collaborator with this, and it's really kind of discussions with them about what information would be useful for them on the ground to help them. So our current project is um, looking at how prescribed fire impacts the trees and if there are certain trees that might be more vulnerable, which would help them to target their um, limited resources for um, treatments before fires. So things like maybe raking away duff or removing fuel loads from the base of trees. They don't have necessarily the resources to do that in the entire forest, but if they can target certain areas that are more vulnerable, that would help them make those kinds of decisions on the ground and have a better understanding of what's happening physiologically to the trees. Right. Yeah. And, and is, uh, I understood just from listening to 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 the the individuals Kai and and Anthony and Steen and the other people that were down uh, during that project talk about sort of these different systems. I don't know systems of belief or methodologies of how they feel the forest should be managed in the national parks and these protected lands. And it sounds like there's a pretty significant degree of extremes. You know, is it? Is it okay to suppress fire? Is it okay to burn? Should we be replanting or is it more natural to let them, you know, reseed and repopulate on their own? Steen was even mentioning he thought that they should plant giant sequoia where giant sequoia didn't necessarily grow before, but he wasn't sure people would be psyched on that. Uh, or, or, you know, I think he felt there would be staunch resistance to that. What, what, how does that discussion, if you're working with the national parks, how does the national parks make decisions about that stuff? How do they come to a conclusion? Nobody, nobody knows what the right thing to do is, I'm assuming. Yeah, those are all really tough questions, and it's all value-based. Um, you know, like, for example, do you believe that wilderness areas should be left untouched from any active management? Like, for example, replanting giant sequoia trees in a severely burned grove. Um, you know, the parks think that that is probably necessary in order to keep giant sequoias in that area where they historically were before they got all burned up. But it's a value judgment. Well, do you believe that they should, you know, just let things go and whatever comes in is the way nature intended it? And, or should we actively try and keep giant sequoias where they've been burned up? You know, um, those are, those are value judgments. 
they also do put out um, calls for public opinion on certain projects. Oh. Um, so there's a, oftentimes a, a period of time where the public can comment. So um, different organizations or even individuals will let them know what their p- opinion is on a certain project, um, like replanting in board camp. Um, this was a project that we were helping to collect cones for, and it did turn out that a number of organizations were concerned about doing that in wilderness because that didn't fit their definition of wilderness. So the public does have uh, recourse in these kinds of decisions, and the parks do listen to to their input and, and change their um, decision-making based on that. Yeah. What's it, what's it like working? I mean, like, I, I, I tend to, to believe from an outsider's perspective without any intimate knowledge of, uh, of internal politics and, and functions, the national park system is the, is the greatest backbone of, uh, of the United States. I mean, I just feel like when I just watched uh, the Ken Burns, the first part of the Ken Burns documentary on the national parks, and they started with Yosemite as such a profound and prominent land, you know, that became protected before... You know Abraham Lincoln's. I, I I was shocked. He signed it in. He didn't even know, but he knew it was important to the spirit of of North America. Was was like what the narrative was, and I was just like, "Geez, that's we 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 are we are drawn to these places." We you know people that have never seen a giant sequoia value a giant sequoia or a redwood, you know, and it's like, what's it like working with organizations that are tasked with? figuring out the unanswerable questions i mean as as outside scientists and researchers being asked to contribute that 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 feels like a lot of pressure well i mean the pressure is on them more than us (laughs) i think um because they're the ones that are in 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 charge of you know uh, managing these places and protecting them um you know they are some of the most obviously iconic, amazing, beautiful, spectacular, biodiverse places on the planet. And we are very fortunate to have them. You know, it's important to, to acknowledge though the, the thousands of years of indigenous um, uh, presence on these lands as well. Um, they actively manage these places, even if it's designated wilderness today, they do have a really long history of human interaction and influence um so you know that that's important to to recognize but you know i think the national park service and the, you know the, the the wilderness system and everything were important to protect these places from industrialized western activities such as logging or grazing or mining things that would destroy these places in a way you know that the the scope and scale and intensity and the type of activities that you know, white people brought to this continent is completely different than, you know, what the indigenous people uh, did here. And so I think there was a a really important need for that, but, um, you know, that protection from those kind of destructive activities. But um, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. Oh, yeah, yeah. And and I mean, so, you know, is the, are the manners and the practices that the indigenous uh, people who managed the lands prior, are those, are those explored as, as, as like highly researched and really sort of baseline methodologies of how to recuperate the ecosystem or continue moving forward with it? Or are, are, are we at a point where we've influenced it enough that we've, we've kind of messed up that, 
more finer, nuanced, delicate balance, and we've got to be more heavy-handed. Like, where where do you where where are you guys at with that? Uh, well, for myself personally, it seems like with uh, fire suppression that we've uh, been doing for you know more than a hundred years, that's kind of thrown everything out of whack, and so it's it's kind of hard to go back to doing prescribed fire on a regular basis as indigenous um, tribes would have done until we get to a point where the landscapes can handle that. You know, if you put fire on the ground in a forest that hasn't been burned in a long time, you could end up, you know, with catastrophic fire. Um, so I think to some extent we're, we have to do quite a bit of work to get back to a, a point where we can use some of those techniques uh, that were traditionally used. Um, but that's why prescribed fire is, is such an important tool. Um, but in some areas, you know, forests may require some thinning and other things before you could actually even burn in a way that would not be harmful to the forest. Yeah. It's a lot of people. Yeah. One, one, one example of that is the, the Merced Grove in Yosemite National Park, where we're, we're doing some of our research. And that particular grove hasn't burned in more than 100 years. And... So there's a bunch of small young trees, primarily like white fir, that have grown up in the understory underneath the giant sequoias. And the, park's, uh, the park is not um, comfortable just reintroducing fire into that grove as it is without doing some pre-treatment, some mechanical thinning to remove some of that understory trees, ladder fuels that would make the fire too hot and impact the giant sequoia trees in there. There's only about maybe 25 big sequoia trees in that grove. And if a fire comes in there uh, under really hot and dry, windy conditions, it could kill all of those trees in a day. Right. And so, you know, this is like Wendy's saying, there's, we need to catch up to what we've uh, changed over the last 100, 150 years. Um, I think the, the knowledge, the traditional ecological knowledge still applies um, in terms of like the importance of prescribed fire for these ecosystems that uh, evolved with that and are adapted to that, but we need a lot. Of, we need to do a lot of work to to get back to a place where we're in more balance that we can actually sustain that. And you know that is a that's a moving target because as the climate continues to change, droughts become more severe and the, the winter snowpack declines and right. beetle populations are exploding and fires are becoming more severe and the fire season is, is growing longer. That just puts a lot more challenges and constraints on being able to do the right thing. Is there kind of a universal consensus now that, that prescribed burns are, are sort of the, the path towards conservation of, of these ancient trees or giant trees as we move forward? Is that sort of a universally accepted thing at this point or is there still some resistance to that? No, I think it's pretty universal amongst knowledgeable people, um, at least in air, in forest ecosystems that evolved with fire. You know, if right. you get up into that's the, a good clarification. You know, if you want to get up into the Olympic Peninsula up in Washington in that rainforest, that's a different kind of fire historical fire regime than, like for example, the Sierra Nevada Mountains where the giant sequoias are. Um, so you need to you need to be ecosystem specific about those types of things, looking at kind of the natural disturbance regimes and trying to mimic that as best as you can. 
Um, now, are the two are the two of you almost solely focused on on redwoods, or are you? I mean, you mentioned the Olympic Peninsula. We, I had I had mentioned the bristle cones, and you were like, "Yeah, those those are that's a whole other ball of wax over there, right?" Like, it, are you focused on redwoods specifically? Um, that's that's what most of our research has been in in the past. But as an organization, I think we're interested in um, broadening our horizons and getting involved in in different forest types. But our current project that we're working on right now is in the giant sequoias. Yeah. So, um, but definitely as an organization, we're hoping to to um, work in different forest types as well nice. in the future. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. And the I think probably one of the first projects that we're going to be expanding into other kind of tree species ecosystems is with um, cone and seed collections. We're, we're starting as an organization to um, think about uh, expanding to like, for example, the, the subalpine pine trees that are um, getting impacted by the white pine blister rust, for example. Um, so getting into pine trees, um, Working in other forest ecosystems uh, beyond the, the sequoias is is our is our longer term vision. And and you you keep talking about the organization, but let's circle back and just uh, sort of attack the ancient ancient tree society, or, or ancient forest society. Excuse me. What what are you doing with this? What is this? What's it all about? So, it started with a marmot. Um, <laughs> it started with a marmot. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want us to go into the marmot history? I want. I want to know it. Yeah, yeah we, want the, we yeah. want the full download. Yeah, yeah. I, listen, I, I'm I'm psyched on what you're doing. I I want to. I really getting yeah. to sit down and talk with you guys. Like I, I personally have a tremendous number of questions about giant sequoias and 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 all that stuff. But like, the, there is a greater cause that you're working towards here and are contributing to. And and that I, I want to know the full scope. Yeah. Yeah. So you know we've had the tremendous good fortune to be able to have worked in ancient trees and forests for many years now in both the coast redwoods and giant sequoia trees. Um, we've been doing scientific research for, for several decades and, um, you know, we feel very fortunate that, you know, the tallest, largest, amongst the oldest trees on the planet, they are just these iconic wonders of the world they're just absolutely amazing and but they're not the only trees that are old and 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 important and um so our vision is to help with the protection and conservation of old trees and ancient forests wherever they occur we're a small organization so we're starting where we, you know, where we're at in the giant sequoias, um, but we want to promote and help facilitate the protection of old trees and ancient forests everywhere they exist. They're they're getting uh, they're disappearing at an alarming rate um, throughout the the world from logging, from development, um, human activity, from drought, from fires, from beetles, all those things. Um, so there's, and they provide an amazing amount of services to the planet and to people. They provide, you know, they support biodiversity. They provide all sorts of ecosystem services in terms of carbon sequestration and uh, 
all, uh, hydrologic cycling and uh, all sorts of um, amazing things that these trees and forests provide um, to the planet and to people, spiritual nourishment and psychological well-being for humans. Uh, we connect with them on a, a really deep level. They, they touch us on a really deep level and they need all the help they can get. And so our mission is to help you know, in our own small way, um, advance that through, you know, the scientific research that we do through outreach and education, through exploration, through just touting the virtues of them and highlighting their threats and what we need to do to protect them. Mm -hmm. So the ancient forest society, when you were talking about sort of working with your collaborators and specifically on their needs for a project in terms of what you're doing, but, um, is the mission of the ancient forest society primarily driven by collaborators or, or are you guys picking projects or seeing needs as experts in the field that you're directing your attention and trying to find partnership that can help you make these projects happen? Or both. Um, I, th I think both. Yeah. Um, but you know, our initial project, the fire and water project has really come from the needs of the park service. So um, that's definitely one of the, the motivating factors for us. But um, also I think, you know, we'd be excited to pursue our own ideas as well. So yeah, yeah. I think it's a bit of both. Yeah. Yeah. It's a matching with um, our interests and mm -hmm. skills and knowledge um, and abilities with the need. Um, one thing that's really rewarding is, um, you know, uh, at least in my early scientific career, it was more based off of just the scientific curiosity was driving the questions in the project. Like, oh, well, what's going on with this or that? Um, but now with the, the Ancient Forest Society, we're, we're trying to do a more applied approach of doing applied science that can actually help with achieving this mission of protecting these, these old trees and ancient forests. Yeah. And so blending those two and meeting them and seeing where they converge, I think is, is the model that we're, that we're following. That's interesting. Steen, Steen has officially recruited you for uh, cone collecting. Cause I know, <laughs> I know when we were out there and I was like, Hey Anthony, what do you know about cones? And you're like, I just getting started. I'm rigging the trees. Just getting That's started. I, I know how to climb them. I know how to find them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of a good example, right. Of, you know, um, not necessarily something that we have experience or knowledge of. This is obviously Steen's passion and, and he's got a wealth of experience in that field with cones and seeds and tree growing. Um, but, you know, the recent fires in the last couple of years and the giant sequoias really brought to the forefront the need to collect the cones to help with not only preserving the genetic heritage of these trees, but also helping with reforestation efforts should they be needed, um, you know, in certain areas that burned at really super high severities where natural regeneration isn't happening. And so that's a, a, a convergence of, you know, our own skills and experience with this need that is, that is emerging and the, and the partnerships that we've made along the way, you know, with Steen and with the park service, yeah. um, you know, uh, so I, I really like the the synergy that happens when those things meet. How did you find your How did you find yourselves in a position to be some of the experts that the Park Service sort of uh, sought out to to help with this project? Like 
right place, right time, or just asking the right questions and doing the right research that sort of, um, you know, dovetailed nicely with what the national park was needing? I think a lot of it comes from our history of of working in the parks for quite a long time. Um, We were initially working in um, Sequoia National Park um, as part of the Redwoods and Climate Change Initiative. And then we, um, after the drought started in 2014, we started the Leaf to Landscape project, which was a collaborative um, project that they were um, in charge of and we're trying to look for people who would be um, good collaborators on that. So I think just having a a long history of doing research in these forests was kind of uh, what brought us to the table. What's the, yeah. And also we have a pretty unique skill set of doing our research in the canopies and climbing these trees to, for the scientific research and, that's not something that a lot of people have the experience or skills to do. And so we, we fill a niche there. What's the, what's the leaf to landscape project. That was a a project that um, started after the 2012 to 2016 drought started. So kind of 2014, our colleague, Nate Stevenson from the USGS was walking out in the forest and he noticed that, a lot of the big mature monarch giant sequoia trees were losing a lot of their foliage. um, And he had never seen something like that before. So he sort of sounded the alarm and got the National Park Service involved and ourselves and then the Carnegie Airborne Observatory to sort of look at this issue from multiple scales. So from the leaf level, which was the work that we were doing, we climb up into the trees and collect leaf samples. And then the USGS folks were looking at more of the tree level, looking at the trees to see what percent of foliage died. And then the Carnegie Airborne Observatory was flying over the the forest with their hyperspectral and LIDAR equipment to get sort of the whole forest scale. And so combining those different levels of information to get a better sense of what was happening um, to the whole forest. Wow. Wow. So cool. Trying to understand like the mechanisms of the drought impacts, what was causing this foliage dieback and then explaining uh, the spatial patterns of, well, why were some trees showing this foliage dieback versus others? And so really linking up all those different scales um, using the different methods. And, you know, we provided one kind of set of scales at the, the kind of the leaf to tree level and then, like Wendy said, of the U- the USGS, and then scaled up from there to the whole landscape level using the the airborne data. It sounds like that root work research you're doing will also fill in maybe a gap on that yeah. information because the, the below ground conversation isn't really. I mean, it's like an unknown. Like you guys are trying to figure that out. I mean, but yeah, that's all, yeah. The, all the above where's ground. The, where, where's the water come from? Yeah, what, I mean, like what fills the gap? Is there an aquifer feeding this yeah. area, not that's this a area? Great or? question. Yeah. Well, you know, what really kind of prompted the the current project that we're working on right now, this what we call the Fire and Water Project, is, um, you know, as we were working on that Leaf to Landscape project in the subsequent years, 2017, 28, we were starting to see some trees, some large giant sequoia trees die. And we weren't exactly sure why. And was it just due to, to beetles or, or to drought? Um, was it... Um, you know, uh, fire, all the trees um, that had been killed or died were um, 
had some relatively recent fire damage at their base, um, either from prescribed fire or from wildfire. Um, they, but curiously, they were all in, in wet places on the landscape. Oh. And which is a little counterintuitive. We were trying to understand, like you would think these trees in the wet locations would have more water. They'd be more drought, you know, resistant. Um, but what's going on there. And, um, so that kind of those observations, um, combined with concurrent observations where we started to see and get an idea that maybe beetles were playing a role in this and starting to attack the trees. And so we were starting to climb some trees that were dying back and found evidence of the beetles in the trees attacking the trees. Um, and so the question was, well, why are these trees in wet sites dying more than trees in dry sites, maybe with the same level of, of, of fire damage? And we kind of came up with this kind of working hypothesis of what we kind of call it the spoiled tree hypothesis, where we think that giant sequoia trees growing in wet sites have relatively shallow roots compared to ones growing in very dry, kind of rocky ridgeline uh, ridge sites. Um, and when a drought hit and fire hit, it kind of left them high and dry. The water table dropped. They're, they didn't have access to as much water as during normal times. Um, the, the fire damage at the base compromised their ability to transport water from their roots, mm -hmm. made them more stressed and made them more vulnerable to, to beetle attack. Yeah. And so that's kind of where we got the, the basis for the project that we're working on right now is comparing wet site trees versus dry site trees to see, well, are they actually, do they have different rooting depths? Are they getting water from different places? Um, and, you know, does that potentially make them more vulnerable to drought and beetle attack? And combined with those kind of questions, embedded with that is is how does fire affect that and and how can the parks minimize the risk of of increasing the vulnerability of these trees to drought and beetle attack with their prescribed fire program because they know and we all know that prescribed fire is an essential part of the giant sequoia ecosystems but the parks don't want to implement fire in a way that makes them more vulnerable to actually getting killed. Sure. They want to help the trees, not hurt them. And so that was kind of the genesis of, of the project that we're working on. Right Whoa. Now. What a fine line. What a fine line to walk. How do you, how do you delineate between wet and dry when you're talking about wet and dry? I mean, it's not like one's in standing water and the other one's like parched and cracking earth, you know, it's like where, how do you, how do you even quantify, I mean, highland, lowland, you know, west side, south side, north slope. Yeah, where's uh, the demarcation? Where does where do you draw the line? What's that? What's that marker of like trees in wetter areas were actually sh succumbing to these factors uh, more than trees in drier areas? Yeah. Uh, so for the wet site trees, we were really looking for low lying areas where there may be water that pools and accumulates. Uh, meadow areas along creek sides. Places where, you know, there often is uh, standing water or running water nearby for the trees to access. And then for the dry site trees, it was really trees at the edge of the grove periphery um, and not with any indicators of, of wet sites. So vegetation that would be growing in areas that might be more moist, okay. like lupins, things like that. We were looking really for rock outcroppings and, you know, the very edge boundaries of the, the grove tops. itself. 
Um, but we don't we don't know if if there really are wet and dry sites. So <laughs> something that that our research, you know, we're still working up this processing the samples and analyzing the data. But one of our kind of preliminary uh, findings from the data indicates that there's a lot of overlap in where they're getting their water. That these trees that are growing next to creeks are getting very similar water than to the trees growing up on these rocky ridge sites. And so one conclusion that we may end up coming to is that there is no such thing as a dry site sequoia. Uh, you know, we know from our previous measurements that they need an enormous amount of water, up to a thousand gallons on a, in a single day for a, a large sequoia tree during the summer. And, you know, you see some of these really big, obviously one, two, 3,000 year old trees growing up on these rocky ridge tops and you know they they need a lot of water so how are they surviving up there and so maybe something that that we're we might conclude is that they are tapping into something even if it on the outside it looks like this dry rocky dry site maybe they're tapped into some groundwater that's coming up that the the, the bedrock geology is forcing water closest to the surface um, and they're getting similar water to the to what we call the wet site trees, or that, weathered bedrock, which can be kind of like a sponge that holds water. Right, and, you know, right. so, yeah. Um, oh my yeah. gosh, that is so yeah. cool! So, that, that's you know, amazing. You think about it, these, these trees that are you know more than a, a thousand years old, they've had a lot of time to <laughs> put their roots down and find. <laughs> Where Take the your water time. Is. We're not in uh -huh. a rush. Uh -huh. They're educated. Yeah. They're highly educated. Yeah. That's that's so that that is mind boggling that you're seeing the trees on the rocky ridge lines have the same amount of water as a tree next to a creek. That's that is unexpected. This is the brilliance of science, though, right? Like because the numbers you start to figure this stuff out, and it's just like, oh my gosh, our what you would naturally assume is is not what is actually happening. It's like uh, yeah. just the fact that you were measuring vascular transport in an organism that big. I mean, like when I stand in front of the giant sequoia, it's always like, it's just so big. It's so big. And the thing about seeing the cone collection was how tiny that little seed is. <laughs> like, the cones were tiny. The seeds yeah. were smaller. Yeah, you see like a sugar pine cone and you're like, well, yeah, that's going to that's gonna make a big cone, big seed, big pine, you know? But like yeah. you see like a giant sequoia, it's like this tiny little yeah. golf ball sized cone and this little speck of a seed. And you're like, that's the largest thing on earth. Like <laughs> yeah. largest living organism is crazy. Yeah. Give it a couple thousand years. Oh, a I, lot of times out in the forest, people do think the sugar pine cones are the giant sequoia cones. Right, <laughs> right. Just nat naturally, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. We would have <laughs> never thought that. Oh, wait. Yeah. <laughs> when I, we, because we were looking for you guys when we pulled up and they were, Kai and those guys were collecting cones up by like some rest area, right? As you entered the park. And uh, there was a gentleman like a, uh, uh, one of the rangers. One of the rangers, rangers was yeah. there, and he was sort of showing people the cones and 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 um, educating any onlookers about the process that was happening. And I was just like, "Oh my gosh!" It was so it was so uh, mind boggling. But when you <clears throat> getting back to this whole notion, like um, when does a project like this stop? Because it seems like if things, if the information continues to evolve, you're going to learn more and more. It, it almost seems like a never-ending story of sorts. 
Well, to some extent, the work that we're doing, um, trying to get a, an understanding of where the water is coming from, it does have an impact on the trees because we're um, collecting cores from the trees, um, two cores on either side of the trunk. Uh, we don't go very deep into the tree, but you know we're drilling a little hole every time we do that. And so we don't want to continue impacting these trees indefinitely. Um, so that part of the work probably does have a timeline um, for mm -hmm. the individual trees themselves, but you're right over time, you know, we're going to continue to learn more. Uh, drought is unfolding. So how the trees respond to that is going to be really interesting. Their water sources change throughout the seasons and, you know, potentially from year to year, depending on the conditions. So um there's definitely more that we can continue to learn for sure. Yeah. And that's one of the cool things about science is like every new thing you learn or discover leads to 10 more questions. Mm -hmm. um, and there's, and there's going back to, you know, like how much we fundamentally don't know about these trees. There's still so much more to learn. So it's, it's a lifetime of opportunity of, of studying these trees and, following one question to another and, you know, um, and building upon what we're learning, you yeah. know, that's the other thing that I think is, is really great. And, you know, continuing to do research in these same locations too, will will help with that. Yeah. What a gift. Yeah. What a gift. What a gift. What a gift to get to study it. What a gift to have your brilliant minds on it. I mean, uh, it's really, it was really encouraging to see the effort of all of, all of these tree people come together in this, you know, I mean, it was like, it was what I would expect a gathering of tree people to be. It was pretty loose and informal, and everybody was super passionate and psyched on what they were doing. It was really, really positive. Like, do you you feel positivity in the research you're doing? Like, it's gloom and doom when you talk about climate change and trees dying and stuff, but you guys feel optimism at all? Sorry, you can say, say yes. no. Yeah. You can say no. Yeah. You can totally say no. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're seeing the real numbers. You're on the your, your boots out. on the yeah. ground. Yeah, unfortunately, with with trees like giants, koyas, and coast redwoods, they just require so much water that if we don't address climate change, you know, the underlying issues aren't going away. So we can, you know do as much research as we want and try to reintroduce prescribed fire and collect cones and have them available for replanting. But, you know, unless we address climate change as a species, as um, human civilization, I, I'm not sure that anything we're doing is going to, to help in the long run unless we address that underlying issue. But that's my, my perspective. <laughs> do you think, yeah. do you think giant tree research is, is one of the fields where you have potentially a greater awareness of the severity and impact of that drought? Maybe more than, I mean, like people, you know, can't water their lawns or, you know, all, all, all of sort of that superficial stuff, but it seems like giant tree research where you have these ancient organisms that have been, accustomed and have adapted to the utilization and expectation of these resources no longer having them it feels like it's a field that is is very um uh foreshadowing yeah definitely um yeah and you know going back to places that burn catastrophically because we lost about 19 percent of mature giant sequoia trees in just two years alone from wildfire and going back to those places and seeing how they've changed is it's it's really hard um and just you know 
being amongst the trees just makes you want to fight as hard as you can for them. So yeah. we're definitely not giving up. Um, no. Yeah. But no, I think one thing about working on these really large and old organisms is seeing that they have survived for thousands of years. And this one tree that we're studying and climbing has been growing in that same spot for 2000 years, for example. And to see that it could be killed this year or next year in the blink of an eye um, is, is sobering, you know, and it, it definitely uh, brings, brings it to the forefront of your consciousness of the threats uh, that are, that these trees are facing, that they're incredibly tough and resilient. These things are amazingly uh, adaptive. They, they can deal with a lot of impacts. They get over the, the multi thousand years that they live, they get, they live through hundreds of fires. They live through lightning storms. They get droughts and uh, other trees hitting them and their whole branches sections getting exploded out of the trees. And they, these really old trees show the signs of their past history. Like, like an old, really old person that's wizened that has all those, you know, scars and, and whatnot they they show that history and to see how tough and resilient they are and yet you know increasingly vulnerable to uh impacts um you know largely from humans is is very uh you know it's 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 eye-opening and um I don't know. It's, it's hard to deal with sometimes because we, you know, not only are, is this our job or our, you know, um, mission as an organization, but, you know, we are touched deeply by these things. Yeah. Uh, they are, they're personal friends. I, we've seen some of our study trees have been killed and it, it brings you to tears, yeah. you know, and it's like losing a family member and, um, you know, we have a deep personal connection to these and that's really what's, you know, ultimately driving, I think both Wendy and I and in, in the work that we're doing and as the ancient forest society as an organization, what's really driving us. Yeah. Very cool. And, and uh, uh, do you know, Beth Moon, are you familiar with Beth Moon's photography? Um, I think she did a book called ancient trees. Anyways, she's, she's, she's a marvelous photographer oh. Yeah, check her out. Her 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 work um in the Baobabs and and um some of these like really far out uh places and species of trees in Yemen and and whatnot are 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 phenomenal. Very iconic imagery of these radical I've trees. Seen Joshua yes. tree too. Yeah, Joshua right. she she yeah, she recently shot what she thinks is the biggest and oldest Joshua tree um out in the desert. But um yeah, I was I was speaking with her, uh, and she is now shooting pictures of um, acorns, and like the mm -hmm. radical coming out of the acorn. And you know, when I asked her, like, why why did you shift from these like amazing, ancient, impressive trees to to acorns? She said, it "Just got too sad. It got too mm -hmm. sad because a lot of the baobabs that she sh that she shot." Uh, in Africa, are suffering from um, this massive trunk collapse. It's like a, it's like an implosion of the vascular system, you know. And so she's gone back and seen these trees that she's photographed, much like what you're saying, and they're gone. And it's just like, yeah, it's like it's so, so devastating. And you know, these seeds have this like youthful, un, un, 
you know, tampered, <laughs> undamaged optimism of like the potential for what they could be. And it's an incredible juxtaposition in her work of that this documentation of ancient and now looking at these these seeds and like the optimism that comes from that. And I really I thought that was super inspirational. Um that that she had made those the, those shifts in her work to sort of continue to preserve and perpetuate her you know hope and optimism for things. But I'm curious when you're we'll taking send you a seedling. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious when you take these core samples, are you seeing uh, I know you're not going very deep in the in the current testing, but when you look at say tree rings um, from the giant sequoias that are a thousand, two thousand years old, cross sections or trees that have fallen or wherever you would be viewing those samples, have you seen segments of time that would mirror the kind of significant uh, events or you know changes in moisture and temperature that we're seeing now? Has this happened before? Have they weathered this storm before? It's a really great question. We actually um, went out and collected cores from 105 different giant sequoia trees, uh, 32 inch cores. So they don't go all the way back to, you know, the very early years of the tree, but one of our cores went back to the year 300. And we're still in the process of getting them dated because we want to answer that question. How how severe was that 2012 to 2016 drought um, from the perspective of giant sequoias? Um, so we're still in the process of, of gathering that information from having the cores um, cross-dated. Yeah. yeah, but you can see periods yeah. in the past where they definitely have really small, tight rings for periods of time right. that they've dealt. You know, and this is again, this is getting to the point where um, you know these trees have dealt with a lot of disturbances and, and impacts over the years. That you know, the thousand plus years that they've been growing. Um, but you know, the, the tree ring data can tell you like, okay, how much, how much has it been growing every year? And if you look at the stable isotopes in the tree rings, you can get some additional information, but, um, you know, that, that doesn't tell you, well, what ultimately will kill this tree? Is it fire and drought and beetles mm-hmm. as opposed to just drought in the past yeah. where it's you know, these trees, they hunker down. One of the things that we found in that leaf to, leaf to landscape project with this foliage shedding is that when they become too drought stressed, they just shed some of their foliage and then regrow it. Uh-huh. Um, we, we collected these cores that Wendy was talking about in 2018. And a lot of the trees showed a really small growth rings during that 2012, 2016 uh, drought period. But, you know, 2017 was a wet year and uh, 2018 and they seem to recover in their, in their growth, but some of those trees actually died. So, you know, um, if things, if, if, if it was only one thing alone independent, like, okay, yeah, it's a severe drought. They could probably deal with it fine, but now we're seeing much more severe fires, much more severe prolonged drought and the combination of, of those things, making them more vulnerable to beetles. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's these novel combination of impacts that are, you know, potentially putting some of these trees over the thresholds where they just can't survive anymore. So the trees, the trees that died that showed some recovery in 2017, 2018, and then they eventually succumbed to whatever factors were acting on them. Are, 
are, are you are, are are you thinking uh, that it's a delayed response to the drought and and sort of that hydrology inside of the tree takes several years to catch up or or um, is it is it they were weakened and then they were hit by another factor like do you have any do you have any thoughts about that because I do know like when we we deal with tiny trees in a containerized environment it doesn't mean that they're young some of the trees we work with are over a thousand years old. Um, and, and, and we are, you know, trying to test and understand the, the changes in behaviors, especially the vascular system inside of like the, this little microcosm. Cause I do think it, it can have profound applicable knowledge, uh, and it's so modular and it's, and it's very, uh, accessible for testing, especially in the discussion of root systems, which we handle root systems probably more than any other plant related activity in the practice of bonsai. So the, I, I find that to be interesting, but our trees respond immediately because of the conditions and circumstances of the container or, or, or relatively quickly. But like we have uh, Western red cedar around the garden that are slowly from the apex down dying of Phytophthora, you know, which is ultimately you know, hypothesized as a, uh, you know, a lack of groundwater that's now causing the roots to decline and, and, and Phytophthora is entering the system. But you might not see a tree respond to drought in the immediate environment around my garden for for three to five years, and then you'll all of a sudden see three quarters of the foliage shed, and it's like, you know, hypothesize that that was a response to a really dry year several years ago. Are the sequoias on that same trajectory and behavior, or or are they more immediately responsive? Uh, I think there, there might be a bit of a delay. Yeah, there's yeah. some time lags going mm -hmm. on there. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's such large organisms with with such extensive root systems, and yeah. I. They do have buffers for sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah they have yeah. huge carbon and water reserves yeah. stored within them that they can tap into okay. under kind of adverse conditions that, you know, and when they, when they shed their foliage, you know, that was just, uh, that was a immediate or shorter timescale response, but then they'll, they'll, you know, if they, if the, in some cases, the, the, the drought stress, was relieved after that time period and they started to regrow their foliage, yeah. right? They kind of have this kind of hunker down kind of mechanism where they're like, okay, things are bad. I'm a thousand year old tree. I'm just going to like shed some foliage to reduce how much water I'm losing and, you know, to protect the vascular system from really catastrophic loss and hydraulic failure and which would ultimately lead to the death of the tree and a loss of huge carbon investment. Um, and then just when conditions improve, regrow my foliage. Like yeah. I have enough carbon to hold on for another 10 years, like whatever, you know, that's one of the cool adaptations of these trees. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, you'd have to believe that they were, they were pumped full of water. I wonder how much, I wonder how much water, I mean, we're, you're saying, you know, a thousand gallons of water a day that they're moving um, through the system, but that tree's got to have thousands and thousands and thousands of gallons of water that are already in the system beyond the thousand that's moving through it. I would, I would assume when we were climbing the grandfather tree, um, there was, a uh, a woman who was a vascular researcher named Hannah that was down, um, helping with the climb. I'm trying to think of, um, the gentleman in Oregon city that we climbed with. Tim? Yeah, Tim. Tim. Uh, and he, yeah, yeah. Um, amazing. Tim was fantastic. And Hannah was was talking about 
on the southern boundary of the coastal redwoods where there have actually been incidences of people audially hearing uh, like an embolism or a vascular collapse of the transport of water vertically, and then and then subsequently seeing that tree had died over a, a period of time. And is this something that ha- is happening more commonly in the outer regions of the coastal redwoods? And are you seeing this in the giant sequoias too, or is that unique to the coastal redwoods? Or do you know anything about it at all? I mean, I'd never heard of it before. And she said you could well, hear it when it happens. Well, I, I don't know if I could hear it just with my naked eye, but there, there is a method that plant physiologists have de- de- um, developed called acoustic emissions uh, detection that you can actually put a sensor up to the tree and measure the air bubbles forming and popping and the oh. embolisms occurring. Um, but that's pretty sensitive acoustic devices that you attach to the, tr- the plant to detect that. I don't, I've never heard of somebody just casually hearing it for, with their, with their, you know, ear. Um, don't uh, quote me on that. Cause I, I've, I've just never heard of that. I very well could have misunderstood. There was a lot, there was a lot going on. I was, I was half, okay. I was halfway up a, a coastal redwood. Yeah. I'd no, never but, climbed a tree like yeah, that. There, so is, there is actually a method that, 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 uh, physiologists have developed to, to be able to detect uh, uh, embolisms using acoustics. Yeah, it might have been a um, you can hear it comment, and then there was an equipment part of that conversation <laughs> that we're yeah, not, yeah, yeah, we're it's not probably, remembering. It's possible. Yeah, there's a lot of things that could have happened there that I misunderstood <laughs> what she said, but I, I, it resonated with me because it was like, wow, um, we 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 can we can um, you know, through the wrong action on on these much smaller trees, create massive embolisms that will completely crater their their water transport and vascular system. Um, certain a certain series of events between the upper canopy and the root systems, and we can completely lose the draw of water through the tree. So it, it made sense to me if there's already so much tension on that water column and so much stress that at some point you reach a breaking point, and and it's not about not being able to continue the process, but actually losing the conductivity of that whole you know system. But but can I ask you a really silly question? When I see people say redwood, there's sort of like a synonymous giant sequoia and coastal redwood are both redwoods. It's my understanding that they're not both redwoods, but how does that work in in your field? Are they both redwoods? Uh, Well, it gets back to what what your term of redwood is. (laughs) They are different species. They're different genera. That's not an answer. Mm. Come on. They... (laughs) It's a little confusing because the the scientific the Latin name for coastal redwood is Sequoia sempervirens. The giant sequoia, which has had a a number of different Latin scientific names over the years, is now Sequoia dendron giganteum, but it's the giant sequoia. So there is that kind of overlap between Sequoia sempervirens and then giant sequoia. So and if people aren't familiar with the, the evolutionary history of these species and whatever, I mean, they are completely different species, different genera, but they are closely related and they, um, or not so closely related, but they are the closest living relatives to each other. Um, so it's easy for people to get them confused, but they are definitely distinct. Well, and when I, I ask you that too, because one thing that I observe is I observe 
people studying the giant sequoias seem to be studying the coastal redwoods and people studying the coastal redwoods seem to be invested in the giant sequoias. So even though you have a coastal low elevation and an alpine high elevation, you know, they're both giant trees, tallest and the largest. It's like there does seem to be a scientific crossover either in fascination or potentially maybe this is an environmental juxtaposition that you can compare and reflect on. I don't know. What's the, what is that cross-pollination in research? Yeah. Um, well, they are the, the two closest living relatives. And so, you know, just from an ecological evolutionary perspective, um, understanding how they function and how they grow and respond to the environment is interesting um, they grow in kind of vastly different environmental conditions. So that's interesting scientifically as well. Right. Um, for me personally, it, it also has to do with the fact that they are the tallest and largest and just really interesting as a canopy scientist to climb and study. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just, they're amazing in, in many ways to study just, uh, from a, just a, a practical perspective. And so, that's part of the appeal, I think, and crossover as well. And what's the biggest what's the biggest mm-hmm. difference in the canopy that you being a canopy researcher, meaning you're 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 actually in in up in the heart of the foyer mass and the canopy observing, testing. Um, what's the biggest difference you see between coastal redwoods and giant sequoia canopies? Um they're quite different in a lot of ways in terms of um, the density of the the vegetation in the coast redwood forest. That's a lot higher than it is in the giant sequoia. They're much more open. Um, there are a lot of reiterations in the coast redwoods and fern mats and other things, um, lichen and other epiphytes growing up in the canopy in the coast redwood compared to the giant sequoias. Um, so structurally, they they also seem a bit different. Um, that those are some of the things that come to mind for me. Yeah, um, giant sequoias grow in a um, the environmental conditions that giant sequoias grow in are relatively constant throughout the range of giant sequoias. If you look at a giant sequoia in the northern part of the of the range versus the southern part they all kind of are relatively similar in terms of the site conditions, water availability, things like that. The coast redwood, in contrast, um, the northern redwoods are much, much different than the southern redwoods in terms of both the environmental conditions that they grow in, as well as the trees themselves and the the forest community and the epiphytes Mm -hmm. and the structure and the age. Um, The northern redwoods, like a up in Humboldt County, for example, where it's, it's a true rainforest. It's really lush and wet. The fire uh, regime, the fire return interval is much longer. Um, they have all these huge fern mats and other epiphytes growing in them. The forest is lush and wet. Um, they have, they're much older and taller and larger. And, and compared to like, for example, on the big Sur coastline where we've done some research on the redwoods there, they're much younger smaller, shorter. They don't have the same epiphyte load because it's much too dry for a lot of like lichens and ferns to grow down there. The fire regime is has much more frequent fires. And so that influences it as well. So there's a huge difference from north to south in the coast redwoods that you don't really see mm-hmm. in the giant sequoias. Right. 
Um, within the trees themselves, one really cool thing about coast redwoods is they have this amazing uh, plasticity in their foliar morphology. So the leaves at the bottom of the tree are much more open and wide and spread out to capture light. You get to the top of the tree and it's very tight and oppressed and scale-like. The leaves are smaller. They're more stuck up against the stem to conserve water. And so there's this huge gradient along the vertical axis of the tree. Even within an individual tree, a 100-meter tall tree has completely different foliage at the top of the tree versus the bottom of the tree. Yeah. There is a little bit of that going on in the giant sequoias, but not nearly as much. I was really I was really surprised when you said that the giant sequoias in the Sierra Nevadas capture you know not nearly as much of their canopy water as the coastal redwoods do you know along the Pacific coastline but they are still capturing moisture condensation in their foliar mass that's contributing to their water necessities and I thought that was really fascinating be, because I'd only ever heard of, and I'm sure it, I would have to believe it probably happens more than we think in very large trees of a variety of species in a variety of different ecosystems. But um, but the, the, the coastal redwood had been the one that was so, because of the leaf morphology differences, so highly documented and understood and confirmed that this was a major contributing factor. But um, when we when we gathered some samples uh, of some older redwood, one of them had fallen over, so we actually got a lower, middle, and upper sample of the leaves, and um, and, and it was really shocking to test the nutrient contents of those three different levels uh, through the apical testing. It was like r radically different in the leaf oh, morphology. Interesting. Very, very different, um, which, which you know, was just a, a totally serendipitous opportunity because the tree had just had just fallen. Um, so we mm -hmm. had like fresh samples that we could take and it was just part of like a beginning curiosity, but measuring those same samples for like ponderosa pines and the Sierras versus the Rockies and, and sort of these differing regions, there's a lot of different mineral content. There are consistencies of thresholds and seeming <laughs> necessities for health that exist in nutrient ratios, but it's, it's really, really, it's, uh, it's like the world of these trees is so big and wide open. It's almost in, intimidating to try. And like, I kudos to you guys, cause you're asking big questions and you're taking on big work to try and figure it out. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's fun. We feel very privileged to be able to do the work that we're doing and it's, it's very meaningful to us and it's, you know, it's fun. It's amazing to be able to experience these trees in a really intimate way that most people don't get that, you know, opportunity to get up into the crowns of these trees and really see them up close and personal. You, you, you learn things about them that, uh, and observe things that, that you can't otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. There was an article in National Geographic, I'm going to say maybe like three, five years ago, where the, uh, the sort of the primary thing that I took from it is that the giant sequoias, and it might have been a little bit more than five years ago, but it was relatively recent. Giant sequoias are growing faster now than ever before at like two or 3,000 years of age. And I'm assuming that you might have, you, you both might have been involved with that project where you were actually measuring the amount of leaf mass and, you know, that the leaf mass was extensive and it was causing them to photosynthesize. But you also have this increasing temperature and increasing carbon dioxide or carbon availability in the atmosphere but it seems like it's 
if that was true in that article, is that still true or have we hit a tipping point where now they're dropping foliage because of the lack of resources and that no longer is true and it's changed that quickly? Yeah, we were part of that research. Uh, that was the Redwoods and Climate Change Initiative and um, both looking at both coast redwood and giant sequoias. And we found in many of the trees and, and many of the sites where we were looking at, um, the trees had higher than expected growth rates um, in since like the 1970s, 1980s. And, you know, our, our thinking was that increasing CO2, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere was kind of fertilizing their photosynthetic process, warmer temperatures. Um, we're also stimulating photosynthesis. Um, the changes in air quality in the coast redwood range um, due to changes in uh, smoke production from burning of uh, logging waste, uh, increased um, light availability, uh, potentially a decline in some fog frequency along the coast, also increased light availability in the coast redwoods. Um, so yes, we did document that they were growing more than they had um, previously, but uh, how long can you sustain that? How long can those trees sustain right. that? And this, this brings up the concept of kind of limiting factors. Like these trees can grow and continue to grow as long as they have enough light and water and carbon dioxide. But if drought persists for such a long time that they don't have enough water, it doesn't matter how much light or carbon dioxide they have, they're going to die. Right. So that's what we're particularly concerned about is kind of the – the Achilles heel for these both coast redwoods and giant sequoias is water. And if the climate changes enough that they don't get enough water to sustain themselves, then those growth rates are not going to continue um, to accelerate or um, even uh, stabilize. Um, they're going to die because they just don't, they just they'll have hydraulic failure and they just can't survive without right. water. Right. Right. And, and, and there's been a lot of discussion about the coastal redwood and its hexaploidal characteristics. Um, I'm curious if the giant sequoia also has multiple personalities and, and then, um, I would, it would, it would be really cool if you could just explain what the hexaploidal characteristic of, of coast redwood is. Cause I, I also would like to make sure I'm understanding it correctly. Yeah, so the, the hexaploid is that it, coast redwood has six sets of chromosomes as opposed, as opposed to like diploid, which is like humans have two sets of chromosomes. You get one from each parent. Uh, giant sequoias are also diploid. Uh, coast redwoods are kind of a freak of the plant world that they have six sets. Um, and, you know, there's kind of an ongoing... Uh, scientific understanding of well what caused that in terms of uh genetic recombination in, in different ways and um i'm not a geneticist so i can't answer that uh very well but um the the i think there's a lot of really crazy things that redwoods are able to do because of that hexaploid nature that um, they are able to mutate in in weird ways and adapt in weird ways because of that they're almost able to adapt and mutate in real time in terms of uh the growth that they're producing particularly su suckers off of the trunk and root system from what I, I i was talking with steen about it and he was like hey listen man 
the coastal redwoods and the giant sequoias, they're going to be just fine. All these pines that you see around here, they're, they're, they are, they're out of luck, man. <laughs> they're, they're headed straight downhill. And I was like, well, that's Whoa. good. That's, that's good to know because the big question is, and I would ask you both this, what happens if these trees die? What happens to the ecosystem when you start looking at the ecology of the of the overarching ecosystem? How important are these giant ancient trees to the ecosystem? Um, I mean, in the places where they grow, they are very important. They're you know these huge organisms that are uh, putting water out into the atmosphere, providing habitat, uh, potentially sharing nutrients. Um, so they're you know, a hugely important part of the forest where they grow. Um, could, you know, the mixed conifer forest continue without giant sequoias? Yes, because, you know, uh, they, they're not uh, keystone species necessarily. Other tree species could continue without them. Um, the coast redwoods are a bit different. They really are quite dominant in a lot of the places where they grow. So that would be a drastic change if, if they left. You know, some of these forests, if, if the tree, if the redwoods or sequoias die out, other species, maybe some, it'll turn into an oak woodland or yeah. savanna, grassland. You know, fire is going to play a huge role, particularly in giant sequoia, but also, especially in the southern part of the Coast Redwood Range and probably increasingly in, towards the north, um, that's going to play a huge role. You know, like we're seeing in some of these groves that burn severely the last couple of years in the giant sequoias. If there's no giant sequoia regeneration and the either the, the parks don't replant new seedlings there or those seedlings don't survive for whatever reason, something else is going to come in and replace them. And, you know, we'll just have a changing planet. The planet changes all the time. You know, it's changed so drastically over millions of years. And, you know, both the redwoods, you know, giant sequoia and coast redwoods, they used to be distributed, you know, 50, 60 million years ago around the entire northern hemisphere of the globe. They grew all over the place. And now they're restricted to these tiny little restricted narrow bands of, of uh, distributions here in California. Um, you know, so things change uh, and something else will come along and, you know, it might might be a shrub field uh, uh, where it once was a giant sequoia forest. And, you know, like this gets back to our values and like, well, do we care about that? Is, is that like, is that a bad thing? It, from my perspective, it, it is because I, I value the magnificence of these trees and forests as they are. And if we lose them, then that, that seems like a profound loss yeah. to me. Yeah. Um, even if it changes to something else and even if changes always happened, it's still a, a major loss and um, a biological legacy and heritage that, that, that we've been gifted with. And, um, you know, the biggest thing is that, you know, humans are the cause of this change as opposed to an asteroid or a volcano or something like that. Well, that's the whole thing, right? It's a loss on our watch. It's, yeah. a, it's a massive loss on our watch. Because it's like, of us. You know, when the dodo bird went extinct, I'm sure there was a population of people that were really sad about it. But, you know, like we really didn't experience the dodo bird and it's like prime, prime time. We're like at the tail end of these giant, ancient, uh, you know, prehistoric scale humbling 
that there's a living organism of that size and everything that, you know, is derived from that. So it is, it is really, yeah, it's really tough to swallow. But I mean, like, when, when this is the, the, the challenge, I feel like the ancient forest society and any organization that's working towards these goals of conserving these, conserving these massive beings on a massive scale like this, that is hyper intimidating to the average individual. It's like when you tell somebody, Hey, Hey, conserve, you know, protect, like, like we need to save the world. It's like, well, that's a big, that's a really big bite. That's like, you know, the, the, the story of eating an elephant. It's like, how do you eat an elephant? You take one bite at a time. It's like, well, that's, that's like looking at the whole elephant, you know, are there digestible ways that people can contribute to the ancient forest society to know that they're helping you in, 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 you know, small ways, big ways, but some way so that they can be a part of the positive change and, and facilitate the research that does help these ancient beings have some hope. Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, Obviously, uh, any level of donation helps, but also we have people who come out and volunteer with us and help us collect our samples. Um, so that's a really big part um, of the work we do. We really can't do it without volunteers. Um, so that's been an amazing contribution that people have made. Um, and just on your own personal level of, of doing everything you can to you know reduce your impact and also um, reconnect to yourself with nature, you know, spending time outside uh, in forests and just appreciating um, how beautiful and amazing they are, you know, just understanding the importance for yourself as, as a human being of, of these ancient beings. Um, that's another thing that people can do. Yeah, it's like, yeah. A, it's like a double-edged sword, you know, because I, uh, people, when they come to see the sequoias, do they negatively impact the sequoias? Well, I mean, I guess we all do, right? And everything we do is driving around, right? And um, yeah, spewing carbon to yeah. go. And uh, But you don't necessarily have to go to the sequoias to appreciate their their beauty, but I think it helps to yeah. be there in person. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, we all have our impacts from, from just being alive. So Totally. I wasn't trying to be... I wasn't trying in any way. I wasn't trying to be a jerk. I, I, I think that might've come across the wrong way, but like, you know, it's like, yes, get out and see these things. They're phenomenal. And then all of a sudden it's like, you see everybody walking past the fence and like how delicate that whole, you, right. and you're just like, Oh no, this is like, what do we do? We'll carpool. It'll yeah. be fun. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like trying to hide the, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no. It's, I was going to say, it's like trying to hide the location of these famous trees so people don't oh, go yeah. seek them out. But um, what were you going to say? Yeah, I mean, I think just to, to follow up on Wendy's point that just even connecting with a big old tree in your backyard is sure. still going to, you know, help reconnect you with nature and with the value of trees. And and I think that helps on a, on a deep personal level to maybe motivate you to, you know, reduce your own carbon footprint or to support uh, politicians or policies that will address climate change, which is really the biggest threat to these trees and forests. So even if you are not able to visit them in person, there's, there's still ways you can 
help and still reconnect with nature, even in your backyard or local forest or nearby park. Um, and, you know, try and do the right thing wherever you're at. Um, and, you know, spread the word about the importance of these things and how valuable they are and how important it is to, to do something to help them. How different is the mentality of, of sort of that distribution and, and sort of welcoming, uh, interaction, between the coastal redwoods and the giant sequoias because when we when we came down to to climb with you guys steen was like hey man they're you know they're trying to keep you out of the coastal redwoods they don't want people in there they don't want you tampering on things the ecosystem is very sensitive you 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 talked with about the the fern mats up in the canopy and and how delicate how delicate that ecosystem is and then steen was like giant sequoias though man go knock yourself out this place is awesome rock out, film, photograph, like bring attention to what Anthony and Wendy are doing with the ancient forest society because this is the most important thing that we can do to conserve these trees. And it was like, that's a very different mentality between those two ecosystems. Yeah, it is. Um, And I do think a lot of it does have to do with the sensitivity of the coast redwood and how little of the old growth coast redwood forest remains. You know, we have about less than 5% of old growth coast redwood forests and the managers there have seen a lot of negative impacts to the forest floor from people trampling, going out to see Hyperion. Um, So the impacts that they have seen from visitation are uh, negative enough for them to change the rules about what's allowed. Um, recently in March, there was a compendium released um, that basically makes it illegal to go out to hike out to Hyperion. So you could get fined uh, $5,000 for just hiking out there. Um, the same does not seem to be true in the giant sequoias at this point in time. Um, the land managers have not seen those same level of negative impacts. So I think it has to do with how much old growth coast redwood remains versus a giant sequoia and the negative impacts that the land managers are seeing on the ground. Gotcha. And if that were to change, you know, then we would obviously be supportive of, you know, any changes that they would like to make to what's allowed. You're not allowed in the Coast Redwood, if, if you are even granted a scientific permit, you're not allowed to film people climbing. You're not allowed to film climbing equipment, uh, not allowed to use drones, all of these different things um, that, you know, some of which are allowed in the in the Giants Coys. You are allowed to take photos and videos of people climbing and climbing equipment. Um, so, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. A lot does like Wendy said, have to do with the sensitivity of the ecosystem, these delicate ferns and fern mats up in the canopy mm-hmm. and on the ground and epiphytes that are easily disturbed, um, endangered bird species like the marbled merlet and the Northern spotted owl that are in the coast redwoods, um, in certain areas that, um, are very sensitive to disturbance uh, so it does have a lot of, to do with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if somebody wanted to contribute, how do they give you guys money? Where does that happen? Just, just go to our website, and we have a little donate button yeah. there. Uh, Ancientforestsociety.org yeah. is our website. And, and, it, yeah. and if they want to be boots on the ground, they want to come out and contribute, 
Yeah, what does that what does that look like? Do they need to have a skill set? Do they need to be knowledgeable? Do they need to be you know physically capable? Like, is there any sort of requirement that makes somebody more of service to? I mean, it seems like you you're both working really hard. I would I would assume there's probably you know the necessity some necessity for capacity. But what does that look like? Um. Uh, people who already uh, know how to climb trees, that's super useful for us because most of the sample collection we do does require tree climbing. Um, so that's great if somebody already has some experience uh, with tree climbing. Or even rock climbing, using yep. rope, uh, you know, climbing ropes and using equipment, that helps. Oftentimes we're doing, you know, quite a bit of hiking. So some level of physical fitness is definitely helpful. But, you know, it also depends on the volunteer and what they're interested in doing. We can... We can have help uh, just doing outreach with visitors to tell them what we're doing. So there, there are a lot of different potential opportunities yeah. depending on on people's level of interest. Um, and it doesn't even have to be with field work. You know, if they want to get involved in, um, you know, just helping the the overarching mission. Um, you know, we've had folks help with. Um, you know, trying to design some uh, graphic art for us, things like that. So they're. Yeah. Lots of different things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Data. You probably most have a lot of data. That, you know, most importantly is that they they share our mission or sense of purpose in, in wanting to do something to help the trees and forests. And, you know, that's, you know, and, and connect with the forest if they want to go out in the field with us. That's I think that's the most important thing. Um, there's a lot of different ways that they can get involved and contribute to the overall cause. Um even if they're not necessarily going to be physically fit enough or skilled enough to climb with us. Yeah. 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 That was a, that was a poor assumption on my part. Cause then when you started talking about it, it's like, Oh yeah, people can contribute in any number of ways. I mean, I'm assuming there's a tremendous amount of information, tremendous amount of necessity for uh, correspondence, communication, outreach, promotion. Uh, yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And, and can they communicate through your website if they wanted to volunteer and be a part of this? Yep. Yep. Fantastic. There's a little contact button you can click and send us an email and we'll we'll respond. That's great. Now the the Ancient Forest Society transitioned from the Marmot Society recently, but like how did when did this when did the Marmot Society and this mission to begin this process begin? How did that all start? That sort of started at the end of the Leaf to Landscape project when we needed to remove our rigging from our study trees and we needed help with that. So uh, that's when we met Steen for the first time. And um, over the campfire, he, he was saying, you know, you guys need to keep your work going. You should start a nonprofit. Um, and as we had been out in the forest, um, over the course of that week, we saw many marmots, our spirit animals that um, <laughs> don't occur in the giant sequoia forest, but for whatever reason, they're in um, giant forests. Um, someone we know thinks that maybe one hitched a ride from a higher elevation and, you know, just <laughs> <laughs> found utopia. Yeah. Um, so that's how, you know, we, we started talking about the potential to a nonprofit, and that was really the the birth of the Marmot Society. Was talking over the campfire with Steen about trying. Thanks to a lot, just, Steen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look at all the work you yeah, guys have. Now. We had been we had been pontificating over the whole course of the week about how much we love the marmots, and so when 
the idea came up to start a nonprofit. Steve was like, the first thing he said is, oh, the Marmot Society, just, you know, half joking. We're like, oh, we love it. You know, we really <laughs> like the name. We agonized over it. We're like, well, we, we can't be the Marmot Society. And like, we, we kind of floated the idea with some friends and family. And they're like, what? You're working on Marmots now? I thought you were working on <laughs> Like, what? And it was really confusing, but we're like, yeah, well, we kind of tried to come up with a bunch of different kind of tree or forest related names. And either they were kind of already taken or too similar to other existing organizations and, or we didn't really necessarily like the sound of it. And we're like, after, I don't know, a year of agonizing over the name, we were like, okay, let's just go with the Marvin society. We like the name. <laughs> we can explain it to people. So that's what we started off with. And we were the Marmot society for more than a year or whatever. But we found over the course of that time that it was just simply too confusing for people that, you know, we you don't have the opportunity to explain the name and the history and the story behind it to everybody and people that don't know you and you don't have that opportunity to explain it, don't understand that your work on trees, maybe they even hate marmots and there's no way they would. <laughs> right. they choose there was a helpful right. video on the old website though, right? The little marmot video. Where's that yeah. now? Yeah, I'm not don't everybody's going to watch that, though. Or, you know, we're, <laughs> we get interviewed by some media and we don't have the opportunity to explain the name or whatever. And yeah. So it, it was just a little too confusing. And so, um, you know, we just said, okay, we got to change the name, you know. And uh, we're, we're happy with Ancient Forest Society because it's people have – it's been well-received. People understand what it means. Yeah. They understand what we're all about. We don't have to explain it. So, Makes sense. You know, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. The shift the shift made sense because it, it it's very clear what you what you're doing now, which is which is working in like this super spectacular field of research. Well, I, I appreciate you both sitting down with us. Uh Wendy, I I regret that I didn't get to meet you when we were down there climbing, but Anthony, it certainly was a pleasure. Uh, yeah, we, we, uh, yeah, yeah Lonnie, awesome. Lonnie and Ira and myself, like we were glowing for, gosh, I don't know, three weeks after we got home. At least yes. three weeks. Yeah. That trip was really something. I, nice. I, yeah, that was, that was pretty epic. And I think Ira and I have talked about trying to get back with Steen and the crew to, find some way to contribute You'll find a way to volunteer yeah. and help out yeah we're gonna you guys too we're gonna go climb with tim and see if we can actually build our tree climbing skills because i would be more oh, motivated yes. to be up in the canopy and, yeah. and trying to contribute in that way but you know whatever it takes because I, 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 I believe say, in what you're doing i gotta say too one thing that i really loved when we met you we showed up on Monday, and then I think we kind of followed you around you were rigging some trees and kind of scouting around and the tree that Maybe it wasn't the tree that we climbed, but it must have been that one. But you went up first thing in the morning of that Tuesday morning, and we were there at the campsite all having breakfast and stuff. And it's like, oh, where'd, where'd Anthony go? Where? And you had got up like before sunrise to go climb a tree and get up there. And I just thought, man, like as, as many times as you – it was new for us, or for me at least, Ryan had done it before. But like, to see you be that dedicated and still just find that joy on a Tuesday morning – to get up there to watch the sun come up. I thought that was so fucking cool. That's pretty boss. You know, I was yeah. just like, good for you, man. Like that that love yeah. and joy that you were just like, I'm going to get up there first yeah. thing in the morning. Dude loves Incredible. trees. Incredible. Incredible. Loves trees. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, it's 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 really special. It, it never gets old. And every time you go up a new big old tree, it's a, that whole sense of exploration and discovery. And 
um, connection in a new way. It's, it's, it, it, it's always amazing. And, um, and then being up there, it's, you know, special times of day, like sunrise, sunset, it's just, it just, it's icing on the cake for sure. Yeah. Oh, so cool. So I asked you both your version of a tree, but I, I got to finish asking you what your favorite tree is. Is Uh-oh. that, is that, is that Uh-oh. possible? People ask me this when they come to my garden. We've, we've got like 800 bonsai trees here and they're like, which one's your favorite? And which one's the oldest? Sophie's choice. And then sometimes they'll ask which one's the most expensive. That's the one I like the least. <laughs> But you guys have a favorite, favorite species, favorite, favorite grove, favorite, whatever. My favorite grove is, is giant forest. It is. Yeah. Yeah. There's, it's hard to compare. Like there's no other forest like it on the planet. You know, uh, we were talking about optimism and we had a day off, which we don't often have. And we just took the day to go hiking to a different part of the forest that we hadn't been to before and just the sense that I could get lost and encounter so many different trees that I had never seen before. Uh, it just made me feel really good that, you know, there were that many big trees and I could get completely turned around and lost. And I just, um, amazing. yeah, took away a little of the climate angst. Oh, <laughs> uh, nice. I have nice. to say giant sequoias and giant forest yeah. as well. Yeah. Like, it's a toss up between Coast Redwood and Giant Forest for me because they're both incredible in their own way. Get up into the Northern Redwoods, you know, that like Jedediah Smith Redwood State Park is just this primeval lush rainforest. It's, it's, it's unmatched right <laughs> on the planet. Um, I, I think but it's, if I had to pick, I, I don't know. It's hard. <laughs> Ryan's going to bring up Prairie like, Creek right now. I am. Every time I see a massive, beautiful old sugar pine or a foxtail pine or a bristlecone pine sure. or a massive old oak tree that's, you know, 500-year-old oak tree, I'm always blown away and just in love with them. So, yeah. yeah that's where, that's, that's where your mission and diversity is never – the diversity of the projects you're going to be engaged with is never going to end because there, yeah. there, there are a lot of fantastic trees out there. Yeah, I – Tim Kovar said this, Steen said this, and you said this. When I'm like, what's the best coastal redwood uh, grove? And, yeah. and you've all said Jedediah. And I'm just so in love with Prairie Creek. I, I find. Prairie Creek. I, 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 again, if I had to pick between those two, it would be really yeah. difficult. Yeah. Prairie Creek's amazing. absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. It's, it shares a lot of the similar qualities with Jensen. Yeah. The, for, for me, studying the form of the tree, and, and especially because. Um, you know, in, in North American bonsai, using n- native species, there was a lot of logging detritus and a lot of logging damage when the redwoods were cut. And a lot of that logging slash, you know, regrew from the root system or from stumps. And 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 nobody cares about it. And as it's bulldozed for grow operations or any number of other things that are taking place, you know, on the coastline of Northern California, there's like a lot of material for, for coastal redwoods to be used as bonsai. And, you know, thinking about what makes the aesthetic uh, of these so special, the reiterations became like a total fascination for me uh, as like an indicator of age, as a uniqueness of form, as just this like really kind of freakishly awesome growth habit that seems to really be uh, resigned to temperate rainforest species of trees. We see it in the Olympic uh, Peninsula as well on some of the Grand Champion trees there. So it was like that became, and Prairie Creek is the one where 
I can see it the most, but certainly Jedediah, you just have, yeah, you, it's like you're waiting for a dinosaur to poke out, you know, yeah. T-Rex come yeah. roaming around the corner or something. Yeah, I, Prairie Creek is absolutely oh, yeah. mind-blowing yeah. and how beautiful it is. There was a tree we climbed there that had all of these branches that uh, would fuse together. Oh, so it was kind of like That was so cool. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I'm into it. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Fascination for days. Hey, thank you both for giving us your time. Really means oh, a lot. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for what you're That's doing. Fun. Yeah. It. Uh, I think it's the most important work uh, that could be happening as far as, uh, you know, conservation uh, of the native environment, because it's tough to say that something packs more power than these ancient trees as far as their ability to communicate and people to relate to. So, um, yeah, we want to support it. And we're super happy that you sat down with us. Thanks so much. Oh, thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for your Uh, Well, I appreciate it. Yeah, no, I think we should stay in touch. And, um, you know, if we can can contribute in any way, please feel free to reach out because we would love to help. Yeah, we'll be checking in with you guys for sure. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Definitely. Awesome. We'll have a good rest of your night and we will uh, be in touch. Thanks, Anthony. Thank you both. Thanks. Thanks. You take care.